Thank you for joining us for another podcast on marine fuels. We are joined today by Chris Chatterton, Chief Operating Officer of the Methanol Institute, and Douglas Raitt, Global, Global Phobas Manager and Regional Manager of Lloyd's Registers Advisory Services. Um, Chris and uh, Douglas are both based in Singapore. Gentlemen, thank you very much for accepting uh, our invitation uh, today. Um, Chris, I'd like to start with you. Can you please briefly introduce us to the Methanol Institute and what it is trying to achieve in the marine fuel space? Thank you. Yes, sure. And thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice to be here today with, uh, with Douglas. Um, the Methanol Institute has, uh, has been around for 30 plus years. Uh, we're the uh, global trade association for the methanol industry representing uh, not only methanol producers uh, at scale, but uh, uh, traders, distributors, as well as technology providers. And we have uh, representation um, in China, India, Brussels, uh, Washington, D.C., as well as uh, Singapore, where I'm based. And um, within the marine fuel space, we, we've been working to, uh, to, to basically um, bring forth effective policy at the IMO level, uh, first and foremost, uh, which uh, I think Douglas will probably talk a little bit more about uh, later, uh, methanol being approved as a, as a low flashpoint fuel for inclusion within the interim guidelines. Um, but we, we, we've, we've worked to, uh, to, to provide uh, as close to drop-in fuel solutions as possible for the industry, and in this respect, working on uh, not only design, which impacts uh, storage on board, as methanol isn't as energy dense as uh, conventional bunker fuel, or say MGO, um, but uh, uh, we're also working uh, along the lines to, to ensure that methanol is, is available uh, on a global basis. And um, we've done some independent work in that respect to, to prove up that it's available at uh, over some 115 ports uh, globally. Um, and okay. uh, yeah, yeah, sure. And and you mentioned the number of ports uh, here, 115 ports uh, uh, globally. And if you may also shed a bit more light on on the current marine fuel market of uh, of methanol as it stands uh, today. Uh, do, do you have any uh, stats at your fingertips that you can uh, share with us in terms of uh, um, global volume and and the number of ships, for example, powered by uh, methanol as it stands now? Yeah, currently there are 11 product carriers which are uh, trading internationally on methanol. There is one uh, very well-known uh, methanol conversion. It's a four-stroke, but it's one of the largest uh, Roro carriers in the world, uh, owned by uh, Stenaline, uh, based out of uh, Gothenburg, Sweden. And there are another 17 uh, vessels on order, uh, which will uh, incorporate the manned dual fuel uh, platform, and these are also product carriers. Okay, good. And and what's the uh, the price of a um, MGO uh, as as marine fuel today? On a you know, if you can maybe convert per metric ton basis. I don't know how it's priced exactly, but uh, um, do you have an idea of that top of your head? Uh, currently, methanol trades. It depends on on what region of the world uh, we're talking about, but. Uh, mm -hmm. In general, it's uh, it's it's around 300, 330 uh, US per ton. Um, okay. 
it, it trades on average, say, over the past uh, five, six, seven years at around 350 U.S. dollars per okay. ton. Um, mm-hmm. And in the marine context, you have to keep in mind that, uh, again, because of the uh, slightly lower energy density, you would require about uh, twice as much methanol uh, to run through your, your dual fuel engine as you right. would, uh, say, MGO. Right, it's about 20 mJ per kilogram, right? Uh, methanol, I think, if uh, I've, I've looked at that uh, compared to a uh, yeah. uh, about 43, 44 for MGO and, and VLSFO. Hmm. So um, g- good to point that out. Um, and, and, and thanks for shedding some light on the, the current methanol uh, market and what uh, the good work Methanol Institute has been doing. Now, um, Douglas, I'd like to, to um, uh, tap into your knowledge. Uh, the, the industry perception is that methanol is either more flammable or toxic than uh, the current conventional fuels being uh, marine gas oil and very low sulfur fuel oil. Can you please um, elaborate a bit on the main characteristics of, of methanol in an internal combustion engine? Thanks very much, Nick. That's a very pertinent question, uh, certainly on the backdrop of uh, many uh, alternative fuels uh, coming into the mix, of which methanol is, of course, one of them. And yes, it indeed is a fuel that has some risks. I mean, the flashpoint is 12 degrees. It is a te- toxic chemical when ingested or uh, long-term exposure does pose personnel and staff harm on uh, terminals, barges, ships, and so forth. But I think the main point to consider is that these uh, safety concerns can largely be addressed by, for example, using inert systems and inert tanks on board ships, on board tanks, so that the exposure of the toxicity of methanol is not prevalent. And as to the low flashpoints, Yes, that appears to be something that people are quite concerned about. But may I remind the audience that methanol is a liquid when transported. So it is much more practical and simpler to transport from different uh, assets, from terminals to barges, from trucks to barges, barges to ships and so forth. So provided that the human actor on board, the barge, ship, terminal doesn't get exposed to methanol, it's an actually fairly simple liquid to, to handle. And in that respect, I would suggest it's not, not that much more complicated than a typical MGO loading or discharge. So, um, and, and as a final point here, of course, the other low flashpoint fuels such as ammonia, LNG, hydrogen also or have their own unique specific safety concerns. So for all alternative fuels, there has to be a process in place to de-risk the fuels as such for uh, use to, in the marine uh, sector. Uh, speaking of uh, those those processes that you just uh, mentioned, can you please elaborate a bit on on those, um, uh, I guess, safety and fuel regulations and, and guidelines that needs to be in place for a wider adoption of, of methanol as a marine fuel? What has been done so far and what else needs to be done uh, in order to for this wider adoption of, of methanol as marine fuel context? Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're not wrong with that question. And, and again, it's a very relevant question in terms of when can shipping um, practically and safely consider the use of such fuels, including methanol. And the IGF code is really the area where methanol and alcohol fuels and, and ammonia, for that matter, all have to find its place. And that, that work is underway, but it will take some time. But 
recently the MSC meeting that concluded in November approved interim guidelines for the safety of ships using methyl, ethyl alcohols and for the layman methyl alcohol is methanol, ethyl alcohol is ethanol. So to approve these through interim guidelines um, to provide uh, an international standard for using such fuels and, and these guidelines to my point earlier really center around the, the arrangements, installation, control and monitoring of machinery, equipment and systems using alcohol-based fuels so as to minimize the risk to the ship, the crew and the environment. And, and on the environment, uh, there's an interesting point that I may not have mentioned, but I think it's quite interesting if we want to compare MGO with methanol bunkering. Methanol is fully biodegradable and 100% soluble in water. So an MGO spill, as we all know, is not desirable, but with methanol, it readily breaks down in the environment. So from a from a liquid spill perspective, there would actually be a, a bigger benefit uh, with methanol than with MGO. Speaking of the uh, environment, um, I'd like to uh, both of you to to um, talk about a bit about the IMO 2030 and 2050. Methanol is one of the solutions uh, to meet those CO2 and GHG uh, re reduction targets. Um, and, and what we hear in the press is, is um, biomethanol, synthetic methanol. How, how do you make uh, this biomethanol and, and, and synthetic methanol? What, what's the, the quality uh, of these two um, renewable or green methanols versus, uh, if you can call it the, the gray methanol, conventional methanol that we have today, readily available, and, and their benefits on, uh, on the environment? Either of you, Chris or, or Douglas, you can uh, just jump in. Go ahead, Chris. Okay, maybe I can. Maybe I can uh, say a few sure. words. Uh, well, for, for example, biomethanol is uh, methanol that uh, is, is just produced from a biogenic pathway uh, and uh, perhaps where, where CO or CO2 has been recycled, uh, which otherwise would have been released into the atmosphere. Or it can be taken off a, uh, say, a more pure stream of, of CO2, such as an, an ethanol plant. Um, but in general, the, the, the biomass can be uh, can be municipal solid waste, for example, or uh, or uh, dedicated uh, crops, or or practically any form of biomass. Um, synthetic methanol is uh, more based on electrolysis, which is splitting of water molecules uh, using renewable power or electricity to do so, um, and then combining that with carbon capture. Uh, and utilization technology. So in a synthetic pathway, um, the, the, the cost is going to be largely dependent upon the, the price or the cost of that, uh, that green hydrogen. Uh, and, that, and that's pretty much standard for any of these uh, alternative candidate fuels. Um, and, and in terms of the, the benefits on, on the environment, so uh, either of those, you know, biomethanol or synthetic methanol would meet um, the 2050 um, uh, target, which is really the most stringent one compared to, to the 2030 40% uh, reduction of CO2 intensity, right? So uh, mm -hmm. either of synthetic and biomethanol meets those uh, 2050 targets? Yes, uh, yeah. both can, can, can easily and uh, readily uh, meet those targets. Uh, in fact, they could 
uh, readily meet uh, 2030 targets. Um, but uh, a, a lot depends on policy, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, how, how much or, or to what level uh, these uh, these candidate fuels are, are uh, supported by governments and, and at the global uh, level by IMO. But uh, yes, the, uh, in a methanol pathway, uh, we can receive a, um, either bio or renewable uh, net zero carbon fuel. Can I interject here as well to, mm-hmm. to add a little bit to Chris's point? In my mind, the life cycle emissions is the key point when looking at these alternative fuels, especially with methanol. If we just look at, uh, you know, tank to stack type emissions, then methanol may not necessarily uh, get that community readiness buy into it. But if we look at from a life cycle perspective that then goes to Chris's point, then it becomes net carbon, a uh, net carbon, uh, zero carbon fuels, and and in that respect, I think when it comes to the the costs of or the overall uh, considering those fuels, it really is an interplay between technology readiness, investment readiness, and community readiness. So, for example, biomethanol, perhaps technical technologically ready, commercially ready. But if the larger community, the NGOs, associate bio with crops, for example, you might find that that methanol would not be considered favorably as compared to some of the others, such as the e-fuel methanols. And and it's just a point that I wanted to add to Chris's point. Yeah. Uh, Good. And uh, you touched on uh, scalability and and, uh, I guess it's it's very important, especially for shipping, because we're, when we're talking about deep sea shipping here, I mean, methanol is clearly a solution for deep sea shipping. Um, it's it's all about scalability and affordability. Um, and and right now, do you, if if you were to produce uh, either biomethanol or, or synthetic methanol, what would be the price today of such uh, of such uh, you know? green pathway methanol. Do, do you have any idea? For example, green ammonia, uh, uh, there was an expert green ammonia uh, two, two, three weeks ago at a bio um, Argus uh, conference mentioned that, uh, you know, yes, it, it all depends on the assumptions and the, the, the model that you have in place. And it can be, uh, you know, up to $3,200 per ton for green ammonia, for example, for a very small plant uh, where electric, renewable electricity is extremely expensive. So um, do, do you have a range of prices for such a green methanol? Yeah, uh, both bio and renewable methanol are already being produced uh, today uh, for for several years now, and um, uh, in a in a renewable format, uh, the, the best reference that we have, which uh, goes back some seven years, is is from CRI out of Iceland, and uh, I, I believe they're selling it somewhere something less than than about a thousand per ton. And um, we, we, we definitely see that as uh, new projects are, are being announced uh, all the time, there have been uh, four uh, recently announced over the past few months, uh, we'll, we'll see prices drop. Uh, one, as a result of the cost of the uh, electrolyzers themselves, uh, similar as, uh, say, solar panels or, or uh, windmills have also fallen. 
Um, but also, uh, again, um, uh, from a running cost perspective, uh, the price uh, on, a, on a megawatt hour basis for the, uh, for the renewable power itself to, to drive those uh, energy intensive units. And then um, a much to a much lesser degree, the, the cost for CO2 uh, because uh, methanol requires both hydrogen and CO2. Good. And uh, in in terms of of uh, market share of uh, this this products of methanol in 2030 and and 2050, uh, what do you foresee the market share of methanol uh, be uh, in 10 years to 20 years uh, from now? Well, I'm. I think uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it'll definitely be a a multi-fuel market, as Douglas mentioned. Um, Going forward, it already is uh, uh, taking shape uh, already. Um, And and again, a lot will depend on policy as well as uh, governmental support worldwide. But uh, methanol is is already proven. I mean, it has a significant reference, operating reference of some 100,000 hours already on these dual fuel engines. Uh, so I, I believe it will it will definitely you know find its place uh, alongside you know both conventional fuels as well as other alt fuels. Um, it, it's probably too soon to tell um, you know to, to, to what percentage uh, of the market it, it, it may uh, potentially capture, but uh, I would say it will be uh, significant. If I can also quickly contribute, uh, Chris. Um, I think infrastructure readiness is really key to this debate. Yeah, I mean, we know that by 2024, an ammonia-fueled vessel is technically a reality. So from a shipping's perspective, all fuels are on the table. But what is going to be interesting is how is the land-based infrastructure going to evolve? What is the most cost-effective fuel to bring to market? not necessarily as a price to the end consumer, but more importantly, the cost of the infrastructure underpinning it. And I think these that interplay, that's going to be interesting to watch over the um, over the next five to ten years. And, and, and to the point of cost, a lot of uh, people mistakenly think the capex is driving the discussion, but actually, okay, so what if your vessel doubles in price? Your OPEX is driving your model long term. So, so what if a methanol vessel costs, you know, 30% more than a non-methanol fueled vessel? It's the cost of methanol that you consume that you should be concerned about, or ammonia, or hydrogen. It's not the cost of the asset. It's really the cost of fuel that drives the market share over the next five to 10, 15 years. I would suggest. And um, and and also, what's important is is to have clear mandates environmental mandates without those uh, there is no real incentive for anyone to um, um, to, to to invest and um, Douglas or, or Chris uh, what uh, do you think the IMO 2030 and 2050 will be uh, indeed voted on mandated by the spring of 2023 uh, or will there be regional type of CO2 and GHG uh, reduction mandates before a uh, IMO that is a, a global one. In my mind, the um, we want to have a global um, system underpinning and driving the change. I think a patchwork of regional legislations that drives uh, emissions trading, for example, 
may not be that helpful and and, and may we remind the audience that uh, EU has tried something similar with aviation about a decade ago and that did not uh, go particularly well because the uh, the companies that were supposed to pay up they never paid up but last time I checked the country the countries of which those uh, planes came from they could still land in Schiphol London Heathrow and just basically not pay um, I would suggest with shipping it's probably easier to have a regional system but I do not necessarily believe it's it's uh, the right thing for shipping because it needs to be globally driven and and to the point of regional ETSs what will be done with the funds collected will shipping get its fair share of investment dollars from those schemes because if it becomes a cash cow for collecting emission trading taxes indirectly but it doesn't go back to shipping in its fair share then how effective will the scheme be so i'm, I'm a big fan of market-based measures but they need to have a clear benefit to the industry that it's targeted at if it's just a means of collecting revenue by nation states i do not necessarily I believe that is the right thing for uh, for shipping. Yeah. Chris, do you have anything to add to this? Well, I think that's a that's a pretty good summary. Um, I, I would yep. also hope that uh, you know that um, uh, these these uh, mandates will be adopted uh, as early as uh, 2023, and it looks like we're we're on course uh, to do so. It looks like there's uh, building momentum and and kind of consensus uh, within the industry that. Uh, you know we're going to have to get on with it and um, we don't really have uh, you know that much time to, to keep debating uh, these issues so um, I, I believe these market-based measures will, will definitely be introduced and um, and uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be getting on with it uh, uh, within the next couple of years and um, the the at the MEPC 75 last month in uh, November 2020 um, the uh, so the IMO proposed a $2 per ton levy uh, over 10 years, which uh, with a 250 million ton per year uh, bunker market, it adds up to a total of $5 billion um, being raised and then to help finance the decarbonization uh, efforts. Um, do you think it's um, it's it's adequate? Um, is it... Is it um, you know, is it too small uh, of, a, of, a, of a figure here, of a target, or is it uh, adequate enough or a good start? I don't know who wants to tackle this one. Uh, Doug, you, you uh, kind of alluded to that uh, in, in your answer to the previous question. Yeah, th thanks, Nick. I, I, I believe it's a good start. If nothing else, that fu those funds can be put to good use to do concept proofing of technology, concept proofing of uh, the risks associated with the fuels, how to go about them, how to uh, transition the market from the old to the new. So uh, for starters, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a good initiative. Whether or not it's enough to truly uh, tackle the juggernaut of uh, full decarbonization of shipping by 2050 and, and achieve those ambitious goals uh, that remains to be seen, but I'm sure, as for starters, this is a good um, 
a good pledge by the industry. Uh, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, as a uh, as a sort of a final question here, um, I, I'd like to talk about um, the the industry that. Um, you know, has as finally, I guess one could say, uh, starting to embrace technology, and especially with the point of making the the bunker transaction and operation uh, more transparent uh, and efficient. Uh, you're both based in in Singapore, so of course you know everything about the uh, implementation. For example, the mass flow meter uh, starting in January 2017, which um, largely has been praised as a, a success story in in saving um, uh, shipping companies the whole you know sort of the delivery uh, of bunkers uh, money and time. Um, there is uh, more and more online bunker management uh, management platforms. Um, there is an increased transparency also. Um, the different blends of VLSFO and their energy content versus uh, the face value price that is being quoted to ship owners and, and uh, the likes of, for example, Hafnia are looking more into the energy content uh, on a, a dollar per ton basis um, before purchasing bunkers. Um, there is also blockchain technology making its way um, for paperless transactions and uh, the better tracking of quality. So. How will this impact or shape the bunker market going forward? And also, it's not to lead you in any of, um, you know, in your answer into this, but but uh, will the large bunker back-to-back trading companies such as Bunker Holding, World Fuel, Skocket, that largely dominate uh, this uh, market, this downstream delivery market, um, will they still be a dominant force in the bunker market going forward? I know it's a lot uh, here to unpack, but <laughs> if you can take a jab at it, go ahead. I, I believe uh, that, um, I mean, you, you will still see the, the, the same players uh, within the bunker trading and, and physical delivery space uh, more than likely. Um, but definitely there will, there will probably be uh, some consolidation purely based on the fact that uh, some of these fuels are more expensive to handle, to store, uh, and to move, and uh, that will require, uh, you know, more infrastructure investments, and uh, not all uh, organizations will be uh, in a similar position to, to take on those investments and, um, and, and hence be in a position to, to be able to, to physically provide the, these uh, alternative fuels. But having said that, um, I mean, uh, methanol as a, as, as a liquid fuel at ambient temperature with uh, quite a high purity level at, at over 90%, 99%, so sorry, um, it will likely have less quality issues. It requires uh, much less in the way of infrastructure um, than other candidate fuels. Um, so I, I think that uh, and perhaps maybe a, a low flash diesel which which is coming um, those might that, that might be another fuel which uh, uh, will be able to be adopted by by existing uh, uh, bunkering agents and um, and allow them to to continue to, to participate um, but yeah as far as the the pricing and um, you know some, some of these uh, platforms that have been launched recently uh, to, to market uh, fuels, are also beginning to embrace uh, new fuels such as hydrogen, um, 
biomethane uh, and methanol as well. And I, I see that uh, ammonia is now becoming uh, uh, tracked uh, by a couple of the major uh, reporting agencies. So, um, yeah, uh, the, these these fuels uh, have less uh, quality issues and, and as such uh, probably will, will be more easily traded, more efficiently traded, uh, which can also result in some uh, efficiency gains. Thanks, Chris, for this. Uh, Douglas? Yeah, for, for me, I see it similar to Chris, but with a little bit of a different slant on it. Uh, in my mind, it depends on the level of sophistication and knowledge required to handle a fuel. I can see traditional bunker players could conceivably transition from MGO supply to methanol supply. But your average uh, straightforward bunker supplier to transition from MGO to hydrogen or ammonia, unlikely in my mind. Uh, to the point of the bunker holdings of the world, the World Fuel Services at Cockett, I see them predominantly as finance institutions within the bunker market. So as long as they can give the credit to the shipping community that they require, They'll just partner up with partners who have the level of sophistication and knowledge to handle or tackle any of the desired fuels that a ship operator might uh, have a lookout on. But I think, yeah, I think the level of sophistication of the fuels is different. And I think that will um, decide how the market is going to move. So, for example, ammonia. Perhaps people traditionally in the ammonia business will take a share that LNG, we've already seen that the oil majors started moving in there. There's not that much independent suppliers selling LNG or delivering it. So I think that that's how I think the fragmentation of the market will uh, will evolve over time. So we, we can expect also um, new players then and, and, and uh, like you said, uh, and new partnerships uh, forming uh, down down the line because you, you're right, it's probably difficult for one player to be an expert in all these uh, alternative fuels uh, of the future, right? I mean, well, it, it takes some really uh, deep expertise here. Mm. Well, right. Hydrogen stored at minus 100, 253 degrees. Or at 600 bar. I mean, that's not for the faint-hearted, Nick. Yeah, and I'm a, fa- <laughs> I'm I'm a fairly technical, inclined person, and even I uh, feel apprehensive when people throw these kind of technical terms at me and think, "Crikey, how are we going to manage that?" Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Well, Douglas, Chris, thank you very much for um, sharing your your wealth of knowledge. Uh, on methanol, but also uh, giving uh, your your opinion on um, you know the various mandates uh, and and how uh, the shipping industry will decarbonize um, in the next um, in the next decades. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks, Douglas. Appreciate it.